Well, hello and welcome to The Raisin Not. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. And I'm your fellow co-host, Rusana Novikova. As you know, the Eurasian Knot is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh, and patrons who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you like this podcast, please take a moment and support us. Go to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash or go to euronaut.org and find the patron button and become a monthly patron. We would surely appreciate it for many reasons that we're going to get into and one of them is, is that we have a new addition to our team, Dasha Prokhorova. Dasha, why don't you introduce yourself and tell the audience what you're going to be doing for the podcast? Sure. Um, hello, I'm Dasha. I'm a first year PhD student in the Slavic Languages and Literatures program at the University of Pittsburgh. Uh, and I've joined the team here to um, handle the Eurasian Not social media platforms and also um, work a bit on fundraising. Great. And how do you like things so far? It's been really exciting so far. Um, I think the most interesting aspect has been uh, seeing what the behind the scenes world of, of podcasting looks like. So that's been a lot of fun. Great, great. Well, I hope you continue to like it. And, and hopefully over time, we'll loop you into more of some other stuff if you so desire. You listeners have met Rusana. You've listened to some of the work she's done. And now we have Dasha. And, you know, this is a real reason why you should become a patron of the Eurasian Knot to help pay for, at least to help give Dasha and Rusana a decent wage. Um, given the financial situation of the podcast and some other things, I can only pay them as much as I can afford. And one way to pay them more, and you know, many of you out there probably have gone to graduate school and know what it's like to be a poor, hungry graduate student. If you're interested and you want to help out, Become a patron, donate some money so we can increase Dasha and Rusana's uh, pay for all the hard work they do. And also, too, you know, having Dasha and Rusana as graduate students working on the podcast, this is my attempt to give an opportunity to them and, and maybe eventually others to learn some new skills that involve audio production, running a podcast, as you just heard Dasha said, that she's starting to see some of how the sausage is made. So, you know, if, if this is a worthy endeavor, at least I think it's a worthy endeavor, uh, to help graduate students learn some other things, you know, become a patron of the Eurasian Knot and, and help us out. So anything you guys like to say in terms of your lowly graduate student existence? I think the internship with the Eurasian Knots previously known as SRB podcast, was a tremendous opportunity for me. And I wouldn't have released the Ainu Fever that came out a couple of weeks ago, or I wouldn't have done none of the things that I have done in the last two years if I wasn't paid for this internship originally by ACs and later by patrons of the podcast. And I think a lot of other graduate students who want to explore uh, new ways of disseminating academic knowledge and learn new skills in audio production would benefit from such an opportunity as well. So please donate to the podcast and make the student's dream a reality. Great. That's wonderful. Wonderful. Good. This week's episode is about whales. And um, I, I'm really fascinated by whales and, and actually my favorite book is Moby Dick. And, and I, as a result of this interview that I did with Ryan Tucker Jones, 
about the Soviet whaling industry, I started to read Moby Dick again, and I, I just love it. What What is your opinions about whales? Dasha, what do you think of whales? Admittedly, I don't know a lot about whales, but I think whale sounds are amazing. Um, when you're just sort of listening to just the way they sound and obviously the way they communicate, it's like... I don't know. It's like otherworldly. Um, so I think they're just even just based on that, they're really um, sort of uh, fascinating creatures. Yeah. What about you, Rasana? Any any feelings about whales? I don't know. Maybe I'm focused on um, motherhood too much today. But the other day, actually, me and my partner had a conversation about whales and we were wondering how do they feed babies underwater and how how do they breastfeed essentially that's what i was curious about but never um googled it so i don't have an answer for you about it yeah i don't actually you know even though i'm fascinated by whales i don't know that much about them either uh i don't know dasha do you know how they they feed their young i can't say that i do no maybe we need a letter from the audience who are more informed on the subject who will uh yeah leave a comment to educate us We'll we'll start a discussion post on on social media about that. Yeah, I'd like to hear what people think about, it, especially after listening to this episode, because you know it's it's a pretty heart wrenching. As I said, our story this week is with Ryan Tucker Jones, and he's written about the Soviet whaling industry and its catastrophic impact on the world's whale population and on the environment in general. Ryan is a professor of history at the University of Oregon. He's written two books on Russia's impact on ocean environments. The first is Empire of Extinction, Russians and the Strange Beasts of the Sea, which was published by Oxford University Press in 2014. And his most recent book, which we talked about for this piece, is Red Leviathan, The Soviet Union and the Secret Destruction of the World's Whales, published by the University of Chicago Press in 2021. So I hope listeners enjoy this story, Red Whaling. Something that I struggled with in this book because I felt like a, a history of 20th century whaling just wasn't right if one didn't try to grapple with whales' perspectives. Sure, every, everyone has a general sense that whales were overhunted, etc. But when you when you really get down to brass tacks in the 20th century, this was an unprecedented assault. According to one biologist, at least, probably the, the largest removal of biomass in the globe's history. Pretty extraordinary, and I, I fe it felt it was incumbent to try to think about what, what this meant for the targets of the hunt. My name is Ryan Tucker-Jones. I'm a professor at the University of Oregon, and I'm the author of two books, Empire of Extinction, Russians and the Strange Beasts of the Sea, and my new book, Red Leviathan, The Secret History of Soviet Whaling. I was really interested in the ways that Russian history kind of brought me back home. I grew up in Northern California, Oregon, spent a lot of summers up in Alaska, 
the more I read into the, the history of Russia in the North Pacific, I realized the ways that, uh, you know, Russian history was not just exotic, but actually had played an important role in my own life experience, especially in shaping the oceans. You know, Russia has been a huge player in the ocean's history and, and thus its environment, something that scholars really haven't grappled with. They're charismatic sea creatures, sea mammals. And yeah, I won't deny that there's a an aspect of that kind of charisma in the animals that has drawn me. There's two levels uh, in which I find them to be such interesting historical creatures. First of all, their lives have been documented in unusual detail. Scientists, fur traders, hunters, all of these people have paid close attention to these animals' lives. It makes them uniquely accessible to the historian. They're also a useful entry into these larger ecosystems. In other words, understanding something about what happened to whales actually tells us quite a lot about the ocean environment itself. And so they are uh, not only charismatic, but, but also really useful entry points into a larger environmental history of the ocean. Russia was not absent from the golden age of Pacific whaling in the 1850s. In fact, it was that same decade when American whalers really first began flocking to the Sea of Okhotsk, a place that Russia, of course, considered its own by imperial conquest. When American whalers started arriving in huge numbers, the Tsarist regime tried fruitlessly to get rid of them. Um, this was well beyond their ability to project power, though. And in fact, most Russians around the civil coast seem to have welcomed the trade products that American whalers brought in. Uh, certainly the indigenous people, the Evinki, uh, the Koryak, etc., were eager to trade with American whalers. And this was really formative in the Russian Empire's own plans. They saw the Americans making a huge profit in waters that they considered their own, uh, essentially prying away some of their indigenous subjects, reorienting their trade, reorienting their loyalties, and in the process also clearly devastating what the bowhead and right whale populations in the Sea of Okhotsk. And, you know, the Russians took from this uh, the fact that, you know, they needed to be in on this industry for both economic and political reasons and that they had better figure out a way to do it better because the environmental irresponsibility of the, the Yankee whalers, as they called them, was legendary, infamous. There were attempts. Peter the Great tried to start a whaling industry modeled on the Dutch. There was, in the 1850s, a Russian-Finnish whaling company. The basic problems seemed to be those problems which plagued imperial Russia throughout its economy was the difficulty in raising the capital and in stimulating private industry. Those were things, of course, that American whalers uh, excelled at. All the kinds of ways of pooling resources, launching these unbelievably expensive voyages. I mean, to think that it was cheaper to whale from New Bedford in the Sea of Ohotsk than it would have been from Russia. You know, that tells you something about uh, the genius, the I guess, evil genius in some way of the American whalers of, of being able to, to raise capital uh, in private hands to undertake these kinds of immense voyages. There simply wasn't the social infrastructure as well as the, uh, the economic infrastructure, financial infrastructure that, that was able 
to muster that kind of expensive commercial venture for any sustained period of time. It's telling that it was only in the 20th century when the state, under Stalin, uh, was able to uh, subsidize a whaling industry. The, the Russians really became major whaling players on the world stage. The Soviets were not uh, even the top whale killers of the 20th century, but I think it's the Norwegians and the Japanese close behind them. Russia did have a, a unique role to play, though. Right? They entered late. They missed the 1920s and 1930s, which was the kind of first orgy of, of whale destruction in the Antarctic. And, and when they entered the Antarctic, they saw the evidence there. Um, at least they purported to, you know, they said, look at what the capitalists have done. Unrestrained hunting has made these whales skittish, traumatized, basically. So we're going to do it differently. You know, we have a socialist economy. We have an industry tightly integrated with scientists. It's all very true, by the way, that many, many scientists on board studying water conditions, trying to figure out where whales were. Also, advising on how many whales to take and when whale populations might be in trouble. The first Russian-Soviet whaling venture, the Aleut fleet, uh, named after some of the indigenous people that the Russians had conquered in Alaska. When the first fleet launched in 1932, by the way, way, to a a spectacular uh, press coverage as it voyaged all the way around the world to get from Leningrad to Vladivostok, just sort of bumbling, but also uh, succeeding in unlikely ways in ports as distant as uh, Kingston, Jamaica, and Honolulu, Hawaii. You know, the plans were sell the meat, maybe to the Japanese, try to feed our own citizens, sell the oil on the market. And those plans pretty much all failed. Uh, There was whale meat that was consumed in the Russian Far East, but, but very little. It was very hard to export it abroad. So there was, from the very beginning, a struggle to market those products. And the scale before the Second World War was pretty small. Uh, So the Soviet Union and the North Pacific never killed more than about 500 whales uh, per year. Uh, Not insignificant, right? Way more than are being killed today, but but nothing compared to the rush that was going on in the Antarctic, you know, where uh, 30,000 whales were being killed every year during that same time period. So a small industry riddled with problems already, but also an industry which satisfied the Soviet planners in a lot of ways, highly mechanized, conducive to collective labor, and also played an important role in establishing Soviet power in the North, in some of these border regions that were so sensitive. the slaughter took place in the 1950s and 1960s. And that was the, the real era when you saw these tremendous, tremendous catches you know, on the order of more than 20,000 whales just from the Soviet Union uh, alone in a year. Welcome, 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 welcome. 
they did put the whale products to use. It's not as if uh, these weren't consumed at all in the Soviet Union. They were mostly turned into margarine and played a role, uh, frankly, a fairly modest role. I think at its highest point, whale fat supplied about 25% of the margarine in the Soviet Union, but it did play a role in feeding a growing Soviet population and especially really increasing its consumption of animal fats. And this was a major accomplishment, especially the Khrushchev era, or at least in, in his own eyes, you know, that he wanted to improve the nutritional standards of uh, the Soviet populace. And uh, one of the, the main majors of this was in their consumption of animal fats. And uh, in that he succeeded tremendously and whales played their role. Now, you know, if we, if we did it, wanted to do a sober accounting, well, the costs were tremendous. I mean, you think about procuring your food from the Antarctic every year, or a proportion of it. It's tremendously wasteful. You know, to you can hardly get farther away from the Antarctic than uh, Russia. Not only that, but the Soviets struggled repeatedly, not never with catching whales. Once they located whales, they caught them really efficiently. Uh, they caught so many in fact, that they always struggled with the processing on board and uh, the accounts of the you know number of whales going to waste uh, because they rotted before they could be boiled down for oil, you know their internal organs harvested for vitamins, uh, or they rotted on the voyage back to Russia where you had to cross the tropics, or whale oil was just spilled uh, when it was transferred onto the docks in Vladivostok and Odessa. This was, uh, I mean, for me, kind of heartbreaking to read about just just the wastage that was involved. It was very interesting meeting uh, former whalers, and of course, one can't help but develop a sympathy to some degree. You know, they, they don't look back, for the most part, on what they did as, as something that was uh, something that was evil, although most of them admitted to me that, you know, they wouldn't, they wouldn't do it again like that, knowing what they know now. Uh, a day in the life. I mean, these were gigantic ships. You'd have crews of about a thousand people on board, on board together for six months, traveling down to the Antarctic and back. So it was a, a miniature society, almost entirely male. There were female um, cleaning crew, cooks, also some harpooners. Uh, there was a famous female catcher boat captain, Valentina Arlikova. But it was a male-dominated industry, of course. And it was one in which, you know, every person had their own specific task. There were uh, those running the ship. There were those in charge of the hunting, the harpooner. Almost everyone took a turn looking for whales. This was probably the most important job on board, uh, finding a whale in the vast expanse of an ocean, often whipped by winds and huge waves in the Antarctic. And then there was the, those who worked below decks. Uh, in processing the whale. So you're searching for whales nearly the entire time. Catcher boats go out, they locate a whale, 
The gunner stands poised, sighting along his gun, ready to strike. He fires, and within two seconds, the explosive charge in the head of the harpoon goes off. It blows up inside the whale's internal organs and, uh, you know, destroys its heart or uh, fills its lungs with blood so that it uh, drowns, essentially, in its own blood. A flag is stuck into the whale to show which catcher has made the kill. Then it's cut adrift to be picked up later, either by special towing vessels or by the returning catcher. You tow it back to the mothership. Uh, the, sh the whale is winched up. The, the catcher boat immediately goes out looking for more whales. Those on board start the processing. The first task is to flense the whale. This means parting the blubber and skin from the carcass with special flensing knives so that it can be hauled off in large strips. It's a dangerous job. A whale part might suddenly uh, snap free, uh, could potentially crush you. Often the decks are made dangerously slippery by oil and blood. Pretty nasty, of course. There's, there's grease, oil, whale parts everywhere. Uh, you extract uh, the blubber, you send it below decks. Those below decks are working basically without ever seeing uh, sunlight while they're working um, in these really hot conditions. The blubber is rendered down for oil used in the manufacture of margarine and soap. The liver provides oil and extract for medicinal use. The bone is crushed for fertilizers. The meat provides animal food and extracts for soups and gravies, while selected pieces for human consumption are stored in refrigerators. Uh, and you do that until your shift is done. And then when your shift is over, according to everything I read, you do a couple of things. You, you start reading. Uh, Soviet whalers, they read like crazy. And then it, inevitably, everyone on board read Jack London. Jack London, you know, the socialist nature writer. And that's one of the things I found really interesting, right? London was a guy who wrote about how animals feel. And every Soviet whaler was reading Jack London. And then you might go to a political meeting. Your own trade union might have a meeting. And... Then you went back to your cabin, and if you'd managed to smuggle on some alcohol, you probably got pretty drunk. There was a lot of drunkenness on board. Was was very well paid. Was one of the the best paid occupations, especially in a in a place like Vladivostok. You know, they received the so-called long ruble, which was associated especially with the bonuses that one received abroad. You had bonuses for working in inclement weather, which you were always working in uh, in the Antarctic. Bonuses for exceeding the quotas, so everyone was trying to catch as many whales as they possibly could. Very capitalist kind of motivations here, and then there was a hidden bonus and this was one of the most interesting things you know a lot of people in the soviet union had something called forced savings in other words they they had more cash than they really had things that they wanted to spend money on and what happened at the end of every voyage coming back from the antarctic they had to stop and reprovision 
and they would stop in Sydney, they'd stop in Wellington, they'd stop in Montevideo, somewhere, some southern hemisphere port, and they were paid in, in hard currency. And they were able to just, they went on these legendary shopping sprees. I mean, you talk to people in New Zealand, they still remember the Soviet whaling fleet coming into town and basically making everyone rich uh, in a three-day stay. But basically what they were able to do is they, they had this unique access to foreign goods, so rare in the Soviet Union. They'd come back with seven or eight suitcases full of, of jeans, um, cheap electronic goods. They might've gotten them in Singapore. And they were able to transfer this into really large fortunes. So they talked about that. Uh, they talked about the love of the ocean, the love of adventure. They got to see all these places. They got to be on the sea, uh, and so they, you know, I think um, there were there were drawbacks certainly, but th but these were some of the main motivations. Yeah, of course there was a there was a mixture of responses. Evidence from that period, you know, you see uh, Soviet whalers cutting open lactating females you know drinking the milk out of these whales um, pouring it into cups you see them extracting the unborn fetuses of the whales and you know riding them around the deck kind of horrifying and of course when you are exposed to those levels of pretty callous destruction of life um, it has certainly had a desensitizing effect on a lot of people. That was not the only reaction, though. There, a lot of people really struggled with what they were doing. They reported, you know, having just intense emotional reactions, especially the first few times that they saw whales killed. You know, they saw the whale struggling for its life, of course. They saw the whale trying to protect its young. Um, one of the, one of the, aspects of the Soviet hunt was because they violated the closed season. The closed season was instituted to protect nursing mothers, um, you know, who had just calved early in the Antarctic summer and Soviets were violating that. And so they, they took a huge number of mothers with calves. And I was really excruciating for some people. They, you know, they, they wondered what would happen to this calf. They imagined it would probably be torn to pieces by killer whales. One guy uh, from Kaliningrad described it as a sin. He just couldn't come to grips with what they had done. I, I found another postcard that someone had kept uh, after they'd killed a right whale, which was a very, very rare whale, been decimated by American whalers in the 19th century, and it was totally forbidden to, to kill. And this postcard was inscribed with the note, uh, the very last right whale in the Pacific Ocean. Now, that wasn't true, right? There's still right whales up there, but not many, you know, in the hundreds. And uh, it spoke to me that here's someone who recognized that what they had done was potentially end a species, you know, bring it to extinction. And I, uh, I, I don't think they were expressing pride in that. I think they were expressing a kind of, I, I, th I do think that Soviet whalers really wrestled with this pretty often, but it, it is a story of deeply troubled consciences as they dealt knowing cruelty 
and almost total destruction of creatures that most of them found to be really charismatic and sympathetic. In fact, their, their scientists who always sailed on board with them uh, made it very clear, look, you know, don't, don't believe these stupid uh, stories from the 19th century of aggressive whales, of the danger. There's no danger here. We've made this perfectly safe. These whales are no threat whatsoever. And I think that had kind of the opposite effect. People were like, kind of like, wow. And, you know, is it really right that we're just killing them in these numbers then? You know, scientists these days know so much more about whales than they, than they we ever have in the past, which have allowed us some insight into a whale's experience uh, and even their historical experience. Although there, there's a lot of things we don't understand. But one thing we do is... Uh, we have pretty detailed records of uh, whale stress levels, which are recorded in their so-called earplugs and laid down year upon year. And it's uh, very clear from the records that we have from whalers that whale stress levels, you know, um, cortisol, for example, were just shot up tremendously in the 1950s and the 1960s uh, after being pretty low during the 1940s, during the Second World War, when whalers weren't out there. And you know, what's what I think is particularly poignant about this evidence is that, uh, you know, whales once you were targeted by a modern catcher ship, which was really fast, uh, sometimes had sonar, knew exactly where you were, you were toast as a whale. You know, it was going to catch you almost entirely certain. So the stress that these whales had felt over a number of years was almost certainly because they'd seen uh, companions killed. Uh, because if they'd been targeted, they would have been dead, basically. Uh, and so that gives us some sense that whales experienced this vast hunt for them is a kind of collective trauma, you know, the trauma of seeing a calf killed, a mother killed, a companion killed. Now, whales' uh, companionship is, is a difficult thing to unravel. Whales uh, and the Soviets gave a lot of evidence about this. They were keen observers of their prey, of course. And they talked about, you know, whales traveling together. Often females would travel in pairs, especially humpbacks. And uh, on the other hand, you know, a lot of times whales were encountered singularly. We don't Whales are not particularly cohesive social animals, uh, except for sperm whales, but whales communicate over huge distances. So it's really, you know, even when they're separated, uh, they are, have some awareness of what's going on, you know, dozens, even hundreds of miles away from them. And so we, we do start to get a sense of the, the trauma uh, that the whales went through as they became exceptionally rare, as it became harder and harder to find another member of your species. You know, part of the, the process of killing whales in these numbers was, was learning about these creatures. Uh, and the Soviets learned about them as, as much, maybe more than anyone else in the world. Soviet scientists uh, had an unprecedented access to, to whale lives, uh, whale corpses, but also living whales as they, they saw them being killed. And, you know, this, this told them something which I, I think does resonate with a lot of humans, familial relations, uh, intellectual you know, sophistication. Uh, this is not true for every whale species, but it's true for a number of them, uh, and especially the social bonds were quite arresting. Evil was a word that was used by Greenpeace to describe the Soviet whale ships. You know, Greenpeace, which, which protested uh, very effectively 
the Soviet whaling fleet on the high seas, just off the coast of California, actually, in 1975, and was in many ways the signature moment in the Save the Whales campaign and really in modern environmentalism. Suddenly, uh, Bob and I were in a small boat in front of a Soviet harpoon vessel that was bearing down on us. In front of us is eight magnificent sperm whales that were fleeing for their life. And every time the uh, harpooner tried to get a shot, I was at the helm, so I would maneuver the boat to try and block the harpoon. So I, you know, I wrestled a little bit with their calling this evil. Um, I was not quite willing to go that far and call it evil myself. Bob Hunter compared them to carnivorous Nazis arrayed against armless Buddhas of the sea, you know, the whales. Uh, that, that's, that's not a comparison that works for me in my mind, ultimately. Why were the Russians killing these whales? You know, they didn't eat sperm whale meat, uh, but they did use the spermaceti oil to make um, high heat-resistant lubricating oil for, for machinery. And one of the pieces of machinery that they used it in is the manufacture of intercontinental ballistic missiles. And I said, here we are destroying this incredibly beautiful, intelligent, socially complex creature for the, for the purpose of making a weapon meant for the mass destruction of humanity. And that's when I, I came to me with a, you know, like a flash of, we're, we're insane. We're just totally insane. You know, the, what the Soviets did killing whales was, was not something widely recognized by humans at the time period as, as inherently evil. Very few people would have, would have said that it was inherently evil. There were some that did, but very few people. So, but I decided on the term genocide to try to capture in some manner you know, the unique way in which humans dealt with whales in the 20th century. The fact that they didn't stop when the economic rationale had disappeared. The fact that they hunted down nearly the last individuals of these species uh, in the most distant corners of the ocean. It does contain aspects of what we would think of as a genocide. Not in that pe people bore some particular animus towards whales, but that they were so callously, uh, as a species, we were so callously indifferent to their uh, destruction that we were willing uh, to bring them so close to extinction. I had Soviet whalers ask me, what's the difference between killing a whale and a pig? And, you know, I don't see a difference, frankly. I totally take their point. Um, the The story of how the whale became this unique creature that most humans are going to put it in a separate category from a, from a cow, from a pig. Um, and so um, I, I don't mean to sig single whales out for some kind of unique status in our own way of conceiving of animals. I, I don't think they're that unique. But of course, they, they underwent something unique, which was this near extinction in a way that not many large-brained mammals that we are familiar with underwent. And so their story is unique. And it does help us to think through, you know, what our, our, our relationship is with other animals on this planet in a, in a different way. So yeah, I, 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 am, I am the heir as we all are, I guess, in the West, of this kind of movement in the 70s that transformed whales into peaceful Buddhas. I'm skeptical of that of that conception, and yet I recognize that both that there is something there, as the Soviets themselves recognized, 
and that there's something in their story that is just um, that sets them apart um, as having experienced the 20th century almost unlike any other mammal on this planet. That was Red Whaling with Ryan Tucker Jones. Ryan is a professor of history at the University of Oregon and author of two books, Empire of Extinction, Russians and the Strange Beasts of the Sea, Oxford 2014, and Red Leviathan, The Soviet Union and the Secret Destruction of the World's Whales, from the Chicago Press. All right, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. And I'm your fellow co-host, Rusana Novikova. And the Eurasian Knot is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. And if you heard our beginning spiel, help out and become a patron. You can also share the podcast on social media, tell your friends, family, pets, pet whales if you have them to listen. And uh, you're always free to drop us a line. We'd like to hear what you think of the show on Facebook or on Twitter or at EurasianKnot.org and let us know what you think. And as always, if you like the Eurasian Knot, we'd love to have your support. This is a nonprofit educational endeavor. We like to bring you content to learn about Eurasia and all its complexity. And as you heard in, in the front of today's episode, you know, help pay our graduate student workers a decent wage so they don't have to suffer more than they already do in graduate school. So uh, please take a moment, go to patreon.com and uh, become a monthly patron. Until next time. Bye. Bye.